This is an AMI podcast. You're listening to the Kitchen Confession podcast with Chef Mary Mamalidi. I grew up in this country having to explain my food culture to kids my age, eventually to the point where I shunned it. I just want a bagel. There's this thing called bagel and cream cheese, mom. I, I know you, you've never eaten it, neither have I, but everyone else brings it. That's not actually what I wanted to eat. That's what everybody else ate, and I didn't have to explain myself. So when I ended up in more food literacy for kids with the Toronto Public Library system and in schools, a lot of it centered around how do I explain my food without getting red-faced or feeling shame or feeling like I have to shun it. That's Chef Sang Kim. He's an award-winning writer, chef, restaurateur, creator of Sushi Making for the Soul, and he also appears regularly on two popular CTV shows, The Social and Your Morning. Chef Sang is here and hanging out with us today. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Mary. Thank you for having me. Oh my God, I'm so excited to have you here. But I wanted, before we get into a lot of questions, I wanted to start with a little story that I recently told you, but I haven't told anyone else. And that's how we met, which was a few years back Mm -hmm. when you were one of the judges on a TV cooking competition that I was competing on. What a lot of people don't know is you, and I think you didn't know either, you unknowingly gave me the encouragement and the nudge that I needed that led me to follow my passion with food. So I wanted to take this opportunity to thank you for that. And for that, I owe you this. <clears throat> Asians invented pasta, not Italians. My friends and family will turn against me for saying that. But truth is truth. Wow. So. Well, you're always welcome to like live with me if your fa- if your family's really that serious about it. Like, if you ever get kicked out, you're more than welcome here. I mean, yeah. Right now, I mean, if I don't get kicked out, I've probably gotten my Italian credentials revoked. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, the truth the truth is, and I I appreciate your your kind words, and of course talent always deserves encouragement and that's why I encouraged you after that show but enough about me even though I love the topic um I want to talk about you which is my favorite topic right see this is why we get along you're my people yeah narcissists are like that (laughs) so you've been in the restaurant business for a long time but you're also a literature lover whose childhood dream was to be a writer. Where are the roots of your connection to food? The truth of the matter is, besides the fact that I grew up on a farm in Korea, I was the eldest son of the eldest child in my family. And so when you grow up with six aunts and your mom, um, and the matriarch of the family, who was my grandmother, my beloved grandmother, you're in the kitchen all the time. I grew up learning about or watching, observing uh, my grandmother making food. And so my my love of food comes from that period in, in my life. And it was a period, of course, like like so much of childhood is, is it's a period of great abundance. It's a it's a period of lots of green and it's a period where I recognize the way in which a community and our family addressed and responded to the changing seasons like Canada there's four seasons and how that makes one think about nourishment and and family and food 
but when we came, I mean, it's, it's your your typical immigrant life, right? It's, uh, you know, two very well-educated parents who have to end up, uh, live, you know, working precariously, can't find the, the jobs that they're really suited for. So they take on dead-end jobs that they're constantly changing and very unhappy. And of course, it affects from a sociological perspective. And that's why I've, I've done a lot of work around childhood poverty and, and uh food insecurity and food deserts but also you know as i know food is as much about love as it is about anything else i mean that ingredient being so critical and when you're rushed when you're you're working precariously and therefore all of the time to put food on the table it's not necessarily the type of food that um I, I recall growing up in an incredibly verdant and abundant and um, fresh, organic, wild type of environment. And so I'm not a professionally trained chef or anything like that. Um, I grew up, I, I tried to get away from the kitchen as much as possible um, because the kitchen always reminded me of the, the, the dirty work. It reminded me of the, of the hard work. It reminded me of that working in the kitchen of Pizza Hut. But then, you know, you get drawn back, not out of love or anything, you get drawn back because there you are managing the front, which is much more nuanced. It's much more, you know, dealing with the human passions, much more interactive um, and well lit, uh, no rodents or insects around you in a, in a dingy, dirty kitchen. It's, it's you know, it's spanking clean and everyone's all dressed up and everyone's having a great old time and I always wanted to be in the front so I spent a lot of my uh, restaurant years as well in the front but always drawn back because you know the sous chef doesn't show up or you know one of the line cooks doesn't show up and so particularly when I became a restaurateur when I became an owner I had to do that but I never did much like it and I'll be I'll be very honest with you I spent um, all of my professional life in the restaurant business, hating it for most of that time, the vast majority of really? the time. I hated it, really, really hated it. Because I grew up in a culture where working in a restaurant meant it was a, a menial job. And, you know, chef is somebody who is uh, who's still trying to figure out what they wanted to do with their lives or or they didn't get into that law school. And, and now they, they're kind of stuck. So for me, being in the restaurant business, even as I've been part, I partnered in eight restaurants that, of my own and developing the concepts, which is the, the part that I really love. So a lot of my consultation work that I do right now is really developing uh, concepts. And I love that, developing recipes and, and, and the menu. And besides that, my ultimate ambition from, you know, from the moment I was a child, really, was to become a writer and to write really important things and to think about those important things. None of the th important things that I could think about had anything to do with working in a restaurant. And in fact, one of my mentors, the great Leon Rook, an incredible Canadian uh, writer, he said to me once, after reading a couple of my stories, he said, you know what, Sang, it's really interesting, but the food in and, of, in and of itself, unless it's a really profound and deeply ingrained metaphor throughout the narrative, it's, it's just about food, right? And I thought that was really, really interesting because as a result of that, I write about food very, very differently. Before, it was about trying to capture the essence or capture the beauty 
the aesthetic beauty of, of describing food on a table and things like that, I, I see it much more politically in my writing. You know, like the title of my next collection of short stories is called Eating Dogs. You would think it's disturbing, but you would think this is somehow an anthropological, sociological, uh, you know, document. But food, in, in a very strange way, plays an integral role in my uh, writing, but less like a sculpture or painting that needs to be described and more as as the tissues and, and the sinews of the story. Where do you draw your inspiration from for your writing and cooking? Well, I've always been a great lover of literature and, and in cooking, the, the way in which one finds personal identity is, let's say, you know, you remember uh, the great noodles dish that your grandmother made for you. And then you're trying to, you know, recreate that on a menu later on when you become a chef of a restaurant. For me, that's um, that model is too simplistic as a writer you go through many transformations and because life experience really feeds deeply into not only what you write, but how you write, it becomes integral to the idea of a writer's identity. And I say this because recently somebody said to me, you know, when I read your story saying they whiff of a reader who's white, that's reading your, your stories. And that really surprised me. And the reason why it surprised me was because he was right. I had grew up like so many immigrants uh, who read literature in Canada, grew up groomed by the Western canon. And so what happens in writing, what happened in my writing is that the reason why this person felt like my readers were like white readers was because I was catering my language and my sensibility towards them. It surprised me because although I felt like I'd found my voice as a a writer years ago, I realized that I'm still writing in a way that doesn't have a Korean audience in mind. And, um, And so it felt a little less personal, a little less intimate, and a little bit more driven toward a beautiful line or paragraph with the words that a well-read white person could understand, right? Absolutely. That's what I I noticed that I infuse some bit of my Italian background into everything that I do. Right. And that's in some ways an integral part of your voice as a chef. What I've done since, you know, since he said what he said was I'll just put a Korean word there with zero expectation that the average reader who's never been to Korea or doesn't know much about Korean culture, for them, it's just like, you know, they're, they're, they remain confused. And that's okay, because that's all part of jolting them into the experience of otherness, the otherness being my voice uh, coming through in the, in the writing. So there's so many different ways in which I think about from an ingredient standpoint, how do I really, you know, can I, and why am I trying to use an ingredient and trying to make that ingredient taste more palatable to a white person? Why not just show that ingredient and, and have that 
you know, the 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 person who's not accustomed to eating it, go whoa, what is that? And let them do that exploration without me having to explain. Are you up to playing a couple of games? Sure. Okay, first one, this or that. The choice is yours. You can get with this, or you can get with that. Dine in or delivery? Oh, dine in. Life of the party or mingle and blend in? Wow, that's. I recently discovered I'm an introvert, and so I'm increasingly more the second. Uh, before it was the the front of house. Uh, manager that needed to be the narcissist. Uh, now it's I like to just be more of a fly on the wall. So I've changed. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Work hard or play hard? I get accused um, of working too hard uh, by people who usually had to report to me. Right. I used to always say to to leaders, if you see somebody has made a mess or vomited in the hallway leading to the washroom of your restaurant, right? Be the one that mops it up, but always make sure that everyone else is watching you do that. Right? <laughs> uh, because if no one is watching, you just leave it, man. Like, why do you think you hire dishwashers? Jeez. Okay, bath or shower? I haven't showered in the last four days, and I haven't taken a bath in the last four years. So. Somewhere in between is a bottle of Axe and, a, and strong deodorant. <laughs> Toothpaste, squeeze from the middle or the bottom? squeeze from the middle or the bottom yeah like do you just grab the tube and just squeeze the crap out of it or do you just you know kind of squeeze from the bottom i see what you mean so no i i have one of those things where i i put my uh toothbrush um uh, like under a thing and it just goes and it comes out so i don't know where it squeezes okay yeah you would have that okay (laughs) yeah so like i'm too lazy to be squeezing anything okay what's worse laundry or dishes you know what? I'll be honest with you. I love doing dishes because it's incredibly meditative. Um, mm-hmm. And but during the pandemic, I found that uh, doing laundry was not a chore. Like for example, I've learned that you have to separate colors and whites. <laughs> That's important, apparently. That's very important. <laughs> I'm Mary Mamalidi, and you're listening to the Kitchen Confession Podcast. Today, I'm talking with Chef Sang Kim writer, chef, restaurateur, creator of Sushi Making for the Soul, and media personality. You're a food literacy advocate for children. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in this country having to explain often what I was eating and at a young age, right? And we end up shunning our own food. And I see this in in a lot of ways from this, you know, my generation and my, uh, which is really what we call the 1.5 generation. So we're the ones who were born in in another country, but then, you know, we grew up here, right? And so the food from a young age, if people were offended by it or didn't understand it, I spent an awful lot of time trying to um, justify it or invariably more time trying to explain it because you know canadians are very polite people and if kimchi really smells and it does right and your mom happened to pack it into your grade three lunchbox right you know most kids will go like ill plug their you know pinch their noses but being canadian kids they're more often than not not going to do anything other than say what the hell 
is that in the nicest kind of way. I've had the same experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And so I grew up telling or explaining to kids my age, especially through, you know, elementary and middle school, what it was that I was eating, eventually to the point where I shunned it. In other words, no, I don't want that. I just want a bagel. There's this thing called bagel and cream cheese, mom. I, I know you, you've you never eaten it, neither have I, but everyone else brings it. And so mine was peanut butter and jam. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Peanut butter and jam. And, and you put bananas in it. And my mom's like, what? Why the hell would yeah, you put bananas yeah. in a sandwich? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with this culture? And um, and I said, well, that's what I want to eat. That's not actually what I wanted to eat. That's what everybody else ate. And I didn't have to explain myself, right? And I'm going to come back to your, your really, really important question. But the idea of foraging became something that was brought up by a chef that I recently met who's Korean. And she went and foraged for certain ingredients in in this in Toronto in the neighborhood, uh, Purse Lane. And she was talking about how before foraging became an urban chic thing that you know, tattooed twenty um, five uh, year old uh, <laughs> chefs were were thinking was cool, right? Before that, listen, man, like as immigrants. That's that we just did that without thinking, but we also sensed over time that there was something really deeply wrong with going into somebody's backyard and picking dandelions without asking them, right? Mm -hmm. But when we first came to Canada, I, re I remember this incident where my mom took us on a trip. My mom's very mischievous this way, she'll take us on this like the three kids on a real trip, right? And we were armed with. Uh, a glad hefty garbage bags and we we're going to go to this trip at um, at a park nearby and at this park was a small dam it's still there it's at uh, Dufferin and, and Finch and uh, and what happened was she took us to this area at the bottom of the dam that had uh, the fence cut out so we could crawl through there we were in our regular just shoes in this muck at the edge of this dam. And my, my mother showing us with rubber gloves how to dig deep down into this muck to pull out these clams. Oh. Yeah. And, and she's kind of like being like the watch, watchdog as, as the three of us are there on our hands and knees and, and pulling out clams from, this, from the muck. And and I remember taking the uh, 36 Finch Avenue bus home and people were like, whoa, <laughs> uh, what's with these kids? And what is with that smell? Right. And for I swear to God, you know, this is where my mom invented pizza. Because I swear to God, for the next two weeks, Mary, my mom made pizza every single day, clam pizza, like the most, like <laughs> throw some uh, tomato sauce on there, throw some clams on there every day. But all of that being said, it, it was that I spent a lot of time in literacy, food literacy for kids because I did spend an awful lot of time trying to explain my culture food culture in particular to kids my age when I was that age. So when I ended up um, you know, doing work with the Toronto Public Library System and in schools, a lot of it centered around how do I explain my food without getting red faced or feeling shame or feeling like I have to shun it. Yeah, I, I love this because I myself experienced a lot of it growing up. I was born here, but I'm 
a child of immigrant parents. So when people talk about Italian food, they think of the usual, the pastas, the pizzas. And I mean, now it's cool to have rapini. (laughs) Right, right, right. Right. As a kid, you're going with this rapini sandwich, you know, or frittata. And they're like, what is that? What's that? What is that? Seaweed? What is it? And it's like, no, it's 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 rapini. And as a kid, I don't know how to call it anything else. You're explaining all that. And then I'd have my friends over to eat and they would be exposed to what we eat. But we used to call them war dishes. And the reason why, because our parents used to say back in the war, this is what we had. This is all we had. So this is what we would make. And it would be like kidney beans and uh, with some sauce and some garlic. And again, cool to eat today on a little crostini. But back then, that's what they had and that's what they ate. And that's what we would eat. That's why I understand completely what you're saying. You know, I'd say I'd come home. It was like fear factor. I'd lift the lid on a pot. (laughs) And it's like I'd see tongue. But that was the norm coming home. But I want to find out more about sushi making for the soul because it's connected with the food literacy work you were doing with the Toronto Public Library. Tell us a little about it and how you've had to adapt the program to deal with the pandemic. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, question because I don't know what came first. The idea that you have to take classes online or that I wanted to take my sushi classes online and then the pandemic hit. I was running it right after the Great Recession. And, um, and it was tied to my food literacy stuff that I was doing with kids in the Toronto Public Library system. And then, you know, a librarian had said to me, hey, listen, you know, we've evolved these uh, youth hub programs so that kids can come to the library after school in uh, model minority neighborhoods, you know, so that they wouldn't get into trouble. Is there anything that, you know, we're not equipped with kitchens or anything. Is there anything you could do around food? And originally it was like talks about food and stuff like that, which is something that I'm good at. But then it was like, hey, I don't need a kitchen. Why don't we just do, you know, sushi? And and so then we became the first library in the world to offer uh, sushi classes to kids. And it allowed me a platform to talk to kids around food literacy you know I was asked to do a TEDx talk on it and then it started to really evolve this idea of teaching food literacy to kids and uh, a woman who was uh, executive assistant to the national sales director in Canada Microsoft called and said hey listen do you guys do like team building workshops and I was like of course we do right (laughs) and did that first um, the gig with Microsoft, 124 sales managers across Canada at a hotel in downtown Toronto. And, um, and then suddenly all of the tech companies are after us, thinking that we were in, in the Silicon Valley, right? Mm-hmm. Calling. So I travel a lot with Sushi Making for the Soul around North America. And then, of course, the public wanted a piece of it. So I, I developed a public's primarily um, couples type classes. And and before the pandemic, we were at like, I think our 97th consecutive sold out uh, class of 30, 30 participants. But because it's really education centered and because of the accessibility of simple Japanese ingredients around sushi virtually anywhere in the world, I thought, you know, I really want to be able to do this more internationally because the one time that I did to do it internationally, it was through Skype with kids in Uganda. I had kids in one of my restaurants and we did this joint Skype sushi making class connecting kids from two different continents. And so 
I love that idea and I wanted to really do it. And then when the pandemic hit, we had a, a number of big virtual classes. You know, I did two classes over of over 60 people, for example. And, and I love that because 98% of people who come to the classes, if you ask them at the beginning, do you think that you will be able to pull off a perfectly Instagrammable California role? 98% would say, no, I'll try, but no. And they do every single time. And so the techniques is what I teach so that people can just continue to do it uh, every weekend at their homes. But most importantly, it's the way I, I embed not only the sushi story into it, but embed the story of food into it. And that's what I love, the ethno-anthropological teaching part of it. We're going to play a round of rapid fire. Favorite ingredient to cook with? Garlic. Would you rather eat food with a knife and fork or your hands? Hands. You've got five minutes to move into a new kitchen and you can only take one item with you. What would it be and why? Rice cooker for rice. Curse words used in the kitchen. Jesus. You have time to yourself, no interruptions. What do you do? Right. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? Um, that's a great... To be the best writer I can be. What is your junk food kryptonite? Uh, Doritos. If your fridge could talk, what would be the one word it would use to describe your snack choices? <laughs> Justin Timberlake brought sexy back. What would you bring back? Uh, his wife. Which one? How many does he have? He's so lucky. Like all of them. <laughs> What's your kitchen confession? Do you have one that you can share with us? Right. So my mom has changed four different denominations. We don't know what Christ, what type of Christian she is right now. But um, I think for me, it's very, very important that I know what my limitations are as a, uh, as a cook in the Korean kitchen. And so therefore, I know exactly what to get from very specific supermarkets, Korean supermarkets in terms of size, so I don't have to make it really badly. Um, and so when I have people over, I do a very specific thing. You know, I'll lay out the side dishes and then I will point out the fact that, I, you know, I made the side dish, but I will, I'll never say I only made this one at the table. <laughs> I'll just say very, and I'll say it very fast. I made the side dish uh, here and then. Um, and then just kind of like my head would kind of, if you saw it in slow motion, it would just slowly wave over all of the side dishes when I just made one of them. Um, and they're like, how oh did we not meet before? <laughs> and they'll be like, oh my God, your the side dishes are so good. And I say, yeah, they're amazing. Thank you very much. But, but if they say, but if they say, but if they say, wow, that side dish is really good that I didn't make, I would, I would usually not comment on it. I would act very, very, you know, coy and humble. But if they say, wow, the side dishes are really good, I would say in my mind, yeah, they're amazing and thank you very much, meaning, meaning, yeah, they're very good, although I didn't make it myself, but I would never say that part, right? So, so my confession is that I would, I would sweep my hand over very, very quickly over all the side dishes as I say I made the side dish. But when in fact I only made one out of the six. Oh my gosh, we're the same person. This is crazy. Yeah, so that's what that's uh, 
Forgive me, Mary, for I have sinned. (laughs) (laughs) If listeners want to reach out for more, and how can they find you? What can they do? Where can they reach out? Um, they, you know, they can go to sushimakingforthesoul.com. If they're too lazy to start writing that in, then um, they don't need to get in contact with me. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show, talking with me, making me literally cry laugh. You're always a blast, Mama Lita. It's that time. We've reached the end of another show. Be sure to visit kitchenconfession.com for more recipes and foodie finds. I'd like to thank producer and editor Matt Agnew, and I'm Mary Mamaliti. See you at the next episode.